2: Today on something you should know, phantom traffic jams. You know when traffic just stops on a highway for no apparent reason? I'll explain why that happens. Then medical errors, they seem to happen a lot, but
1: why? So let's say the nurse grabs the wrong IV fluid. So yes, that's an error that could say she did that. But then you can look at, well, what were the systems that made that error possible? Was she being given too many patients to take care of? Was the lighting poor so you can't read the labels?
2: Then when someone is sick or in the hospital, you send flowers, but do they really help the patient heal? And how does evolution work? There's fascinating new evidence. And we can now see in great detail, how some of these huge events
0: that made our world what it is today, how they happened. You know, how did fish evolve to walk on land? How
2: did birds evolve to fly? How did these great leaps happen? Well, we can now take them apart with fossils and DNA. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you, doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Hi, welcome to another all-new episode of Something You Should Know. You know, it is customary when someone is sick or in the hospital that you bring them or send them flowers. And it turns out that Get Well flowers actually help people get well. Kansas State University researchers discovered that patients recovering from surgery who had plants in their room had less anxiety, lower blood pressure, and needed less pain medication. Professor of psychology John Davis explains that anybody can benefit from exposure to nature. A lack of contact with nature may create stress since you're being deprived of the natural human setting. You certainly don't need to be sick to enjoy plants and flowers. Keeping potted plants on your desk, taking lunch outside, and making an effort to be near an abundance of trees from time to time can be a natural dose of tension and stress relief. And that is something you should know. I know I've heard this statistic, and you've probably heard this too, that medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States. And just on the face of it, I mean, if that's true, that's just horrible. How could that be? We supposedly have the best medical care in the world, How could the medical profession be making so many serious mistakes that it's killing more people than everything else, but two other things? And then what about all the medical errors that are causing harm, but not killing people? Well, that statistic may need a little further examination. And here to do that is Dr. Danielle O'Frey. She is a clinical professor of medicine at the New York University School of Medicine. She's cared for patients at New York's Bellevue Hospital for more than two decades. And she is author of the book, When We Do Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error. Hey, doctor. Welcome.
1: Thank you. It's so nice to be here.
2: So how big a problem really are all these medical errors?
1: It's a good question that you ask. Part of the problem is we don't know the answer to that. So a couple of years ago, there was a big article with huge headlines about medical error being the third leading cause of death in the U.S. It was funny because I work in a very busy urban clinic. I thought, boy, if medical error is the third leading cause of death, I should see it every day, shouldn't I? But I don't, or at least I feel like I don't. So then I wonder, is it there and we miss it? Or are the data wrong? And, And partly we don't know because it's very hard to know necessarily when an error occurs, and whether the error is the cause of something bad. There's no place to check off medical error on a death certificate, so we don't actually know. It's pretty common, though.
2: Where did that number come from, then?
1: So this study reanalyzed a couple of older studies, and they were looking at hospitalized patients, which, as you can imagine, are not representative of all people, right? Not everyone's in the hospital, thankfully. Uh, older pa- um, hospitalized patients tend to be older and sicker with many more moving parts. And one of the problems is that because you're reanalyzing someone else's data, you're relying on their judgment of whether an error occurred and whether the error actually caused the death. Imagine a patient dying of liver cancer and they're given the wrong antibiotic and they die. So there's been an error and there's been a death, but did the error cause the death? It's often very hard to tell. So it's already a judgment call and then you're relying on someone else's judgment call. So any biases will then get magnified if you then extrapolate to 350 million people.
2: And so we hear the sensational stories about, you know, the doctor cut off the wrong leg or, you know, so th- these horrible medical error stories. I imagine, God, I hope, that's the exception, not the rule. Um, are, are they very rare or are they, st- I mean, one is bad enough, but I mean, how, how bad is that?
1: Well, it depends how widely you cast the net. So catastrophic errors like cutting off the wrong leg or operating the wrong side of the brain, those are rare. Th- those It takes a lot. A lot of things have to go wrong for that kind of error to happen. They do happen, but they're not that common. However, there's lots of errors that are smaller and cause mild amounts of harm. Um, maybe the patient had to stay in the hospital a day longer, or maybe they you know, had an upset stomach when they didn't need to have that. Things like that, which there may still be an error, but the consequences weren't grave. And then there's a huge category of what we call the near miss. That is, there and errors happen, but the patient did okay. Or as I like to think, the patient got lucky that day. Um, and those errors are probably vast. We don't really know the number because who reports near misses, very few people do. Um, and because the patient isn't harmed, we tend to ignore them. However, that's kind of like the minefield of the future errors waiting to happen. So to me, near misses are just as important, even if there's no harm from those medical errors.
2: Understanding that you're a physician, a practicing physician, so you're on the team, so I'm sure you have conscious or unconscious biases about this, but still, you've, you've objectively tried to look at this problem, an important problem. So how would you, if you could step back, how would you rate your profession, your colleagues? How well a, how well a job do they do as it relates to medical errors?
1: That's also a tough question because there's many levels to that. So one is, what does the individual doctor or nurse do? So let's say the nurse grabs the wrong IV fluid. So that, yes, that's an error that you can say she did that and that was incorrect. But then you can look at, well, what were the reasons, what were the systems that made that error possible? Was she being given too many patients to take care of because they're short-staffed? Was the lighting poor so you can't read the labels? Do the medications look alike or sound alike? Was she being interrupted every five minutes by people asking for ginger ale and directions to the bathroom? So even though we can rank that nurse's boy, she was really rotten because she gave the wrong medication, you can also find the systems that made that error more likely. As a whole, as a field, I think we are finally waking up to the the sheer volume of, of errors or care that is less than we want it to be, and that includes not just outright errors, but harms that patients receive that we don't intend for them to get, even if an error wasn't committed, that's quite a vast issue. So the profession is waking up. We're still going a little slowly, and partly because we tend to want to blame the nurse or the doctor for making the mistake, as opposed to looking at the system that makes the error or bad outcome more likely to happen
2: seems like that would be the case, that the system is the problem. And, you know, I've heard the comparison that, you know, uh, the airplane pilot, if he makes a, a big error and somebody dies, he dies too. So that's why there's far fewer airplane accidents than there are medical problems, because the doctor doesn't harm himself. He only harms the patient. It seems a little harsh, but, but I see the logic in that.
1: But I also think there's fundamental differences between the aviation industry, between airplanes and and medicine. So for one thing, all the moving parts of airplanes are moving parts. Most of the moving parts in medicine are people. Um, and there's all kinds of people on the team. On an airplane, there's, you know, one pilot, one co-pilot, you know, a fixed ma- maintenance team, and that's really it, and, and the flight crew. In medicine, you may have dozens of people involved in care at all different levels. There's many moving parts, and and these are human beings. And they don't all necessarily come out the same. They don't show up with, you know, vasculitis diagnosis branded on their chest. They come and say, I don't feel good, and we have to figure that out. So it's it's quite a bit different. But I think going back to your original point about the wrong leg being cut off, why that's rare, most errors and bad outcomes tend to relate to some form of communication error. So it's not like we're just checking the parts of the um, engine, making sure it works, but are people communicating correctly? Are the doctors and nurses and physical therapists communicating appropriately? Are they communicating with the patient? Are they listening to what the patient's saying? And all those areas are why it's so much more difficult to, to pin down where things go wrong.
2: What about the patient's responsibility in this? What role do they play in preventing medical errors?
1: You know, medicine, it's a team sport. We hear that all the time. We tend to think of the team as the doctors and nurses and then the medical folks, the people in scrubs. But really, the team is also the patient and the patient's family and the close friends who are there with them. We're all on the same team. And even if sometimes feel like we're, we have opposing agendas, there's really just one agenda, and that is helping the patient get better. And so the patient and family, they do have responsibilities too. Um, so knowing your own medical history, knowing your allergies, knowing what medications you're on, that's you know, very important. But of course, the patient's also the person who's sick. And so it's not so fair to ask of them, well, you know, while you're suffering a 103 fever and, you know, vomiting your guts out, make sure you ask the nurse the name of every single medication that you get. So it depends on the circumstance. I think the more patients and families can be engaged and involved and know what's going on, keep a notebook, ask the questions, write down the answers, that's all for the better. But I think we can't foist it upon the patient who is pretty busy being sick or anxious, worried, frightened. All these other things that make them maybe not at their best at that moment and much more vulnerable than usual. So the onus really is on the healthcare profession for most of it. Although the more patients can be engaged and involved, the better for everyone.
2: Where likely do things go wrong? Is it medication typically? Is it what is what is it?
1: Well, again, we don't have a good answer to that question, and one of the reasons that we don't have any kind of national database for reporting errors, so we have no way of knowing. Uh, Reporting errors is voluntary, um, or you get sued, and then it comes to light. The other day, I I, um, detected a a near-miss error that was related to the electronic medical record. I thought, well, you know what? Let me file a patient safety report. It's important for them to know. Well, you know, I couldn't even find the page and the link, and I had to go through six different pages on the computer. I had to call the help desk, find out where to, you know, find this. Then I had to open an account with a password and a capital letter and a small letter. And you know, at that point, I gave up. So we don't have an easy system for doing that. We don't have a requirement. We don't have a national database. So we do not know. Um, it's a mix of those. Certainly medication errors are big, uh, procedural errors, and communication errors. Those are, I think, where the big things are. And then overlaying that is the issue of diagnostic errors that is getting the diagnosis wrong or having a delay in the appropriate diagnosis but that um, encompasses things like communication errors listening errors um and also you know medication errors whether it's the medications the patients are on those we are prescribing
2: we hear about defensive medicine that doctors for fear of being sued do things do extra tests or do, do or don't do things to basically protect themselves from liability. Does that play into this?
1: Oh yes, defensive medicine is an enormous problem, particularly in the the United States, which has a more litigious culture than many other countries. And some several billions of dollars are spent on unnecessary tests because, oh my gosh, the patient's got a headache, better do a CAT scan because they might sue me. Whereas another country, you might say, hey listen, I don't think it's anything other than a tension headache, let's watch it and see how it goes. Um, and so it's not just the cost, though. Every test you do brings in its own room for error, right? You you do a CAT scan. you Maybe you give someone contrast dye, and they might have a reaction to that. Um, or you do additional tests that, that um, pull up incidental findings that maybe are meaningless clinically but then cause you to do more tests. And so um, we definitely – we're just adding to the pile of things going on, and certainly the more that's going on, the more chance there is for things to go wrong.
2: Well, plus there's this whole – umbrella problem of people interact with doctors because they're sick. Things go wrong because they're sick. It's easy to blame the doctor. You know, people die, but people are going to die. Everybody's going to die. You can't always blame and sue the doctor because they were in the hospital at the time they died.
1: Yeah, so it points to how um, limited the malpractice system is for addressing error, because you have to actually prove that the the error, the issue caused the death or the bad outcome, that can be very hard to do. You know, again, people are sick. There are many things going on. A mistake might be made. It's very hard to prove that that mistake actually caused the death or the bad outcome, which is why malpractice only helps a very small sliver of patients. Um, other countries like Denmark are experimenting with other systems that are more akin to our workers' compensation system, where you don't involve lawyers and in going to court, but you simply file a claim. And if the adjudicating board you know, sees that this is maybe less than standard of care or you suffered some kind of harm, then you either get a settlement or you don't. And in this way, many more patients um, can get some kind of compensation, get their issue addressed. Um, the payments are smaller, but they're faster. They don't take five years. They take a few months. And also, it becomes now a database, um, a repository for finding out about problems that are going on. So you might see, oh, in one hospital, there are lots of claims for pressure ulcers, boy, something's probably going on there. So it has double duty for both giving more patients some kind of restitution, but also enabling you know, researchers to see where things are going wrong.
2: Well, this, this is clearly a problem with a lot of moving parts that's really hard to nail down. We're talking about medical errors, and my guest is Dr. Danielle Ofri. She's a clinical professor of medicine at the New York University School of Medicine and author of the book, Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Doctor, what about the problem that was portrayed in the podcast and the TV show, Dr. Death? So, here was this doctor in Texas who was grossly incompetent and and perhaps even maliciously trying to do harm to people and, and he would just move from hospital to hospital he would get fired for his his negligence and his incompetence and then he'd get hired at another hospital and it, he would just move on and do more harm and do more harm
1: yeah i mean that's a a, a tragedy um and i would say very rare um, a small subset, very small subset of bad outcomes are caused by truly negligent people like that. But it's very small. The overwhelming majority of errors and adverse outcomes result from clinicians who are committed, doctors and nurses who are doing their best under challenging circumstances and maybe temporarily just miss something, Or, but it's certainly not negligence. But there are a few. It's small. Now, the issue, though, of people covering is something else. Because there, you can imagine, you know, a step back from that kind of, you know, true criminal behavior, let's say a doctor's getting older or or having poor judgment or you know, maybe off their game, not, you know, doing horrific things, but maybe not as good as they could be. Who turns that doctor and who reports that? That's very hard to do. I mean, many doctors and nurses have depression uh, substance issues. They're being very overworked, certainly in the in the wake of COVID. Many, many clinicians are suffering, and it can come through in their work. And we would like our colleagues to, you know, bring those issues to the surface because we want to help that staff in addition to protecting their patients.
2: Do doctors, because I've had really good doctors, and I've had really crappy doctors, and, and by crappy, I mean non-communicative sometimes even nasty don't really aren't very helpful. Maybe they're, maybe they're good technically as a doctor, but they're lousy as, as a a person doctor, you know, their bedside manner sucks. Basically, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and and I wonder why that is. If you're a doctor, why are you acting like that? When, you know, people are sick, they, 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 they're relying on you and you're treating them poorly.
1: That's a great question. I, bang my head against the wall all the time. The book I wrote before this one was called What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear, about the issue of communication between doctors and patients and why it's so difficult. Because you often hear, you know, so-and-so, you know, great doctor but lousy bedside manner. But what I discovered after researching that book is that those things can't exist apart. You can't actually be a great doctor with a lousy, you know, quote, bedside manner, for which we really mean communication skills, because What the patient is saying is the primary data from which we make all our diagnoses, all our treatment plans. And so listening, it's not just nice, it's critical um, to be accurate um, and to make the right diagnosis. Now, why are some doctors really crappy? Well, some people are probably just misanthropes and they probably shouldn't have gone into medicine. Again, that's probably a smaller percentage, but I think a lot of doctors are simply so overworked by the system. I mean right now, you know this, everyone knows this. You go to your doctor and they're sitting in front of a computer screen, battling with with the electronic medical record. You know, you see them hitting the side of the computer and you know, muttering under their breath about the help desk. And we've given doctors and nurses more, you know, annoying work to do than they even have the time for. So it's hard to even spend time with the patient if you have 25 minutes worth of box checking to do and 10 minutes to see the patient and do everything. So a a lot of doctors and nurses, uh, I wouldn't say burned out because that puts a little bit of onus on them. I think they, it's more like a moral injury. They're being asked to basically cut corners because there's no way to do it without cutting corners. And that's morally corrosive. And so we use the term more of moral injury. And for many people that becomes so difficult, it's very hard to maintain the reason you wanted to go into medicine to spend time with patients and be with them and some people unfortunately end up with the phenotype of kind of a grouchy uncommunicative doctor or nurse and that's bad for everyone.
2: Is being a doctor getting so difficult that it's really turning a lot of people off or are we facing a shortage of doctors like we are nurses or not?
1: Well, we do have a shortage of doctors, particularly in the primary care fields, that is general internists, family doctors, pediatricians, and you might see a common theme. These are the professions that are very burdened by paperwork, um, are relatively lower paid on, on the spectrum of doctor payment, which is certainly no no doctor is starving, but definitely they're lower paid. Uh, the hours tend to be longer I mean, compare that to some specialties like dermatology, radiology, where hours are fixed and, and the pay is very high because they're procedure-based. So um, we we certainly have a shortage of primary care doctors. Try getting an appointment with a, an internist is pretty tough these days. And I think it's because, the, um, you know, partly you accrue a lot of debt as a doctor. So to go into a relatively lower paid field is, is maybe not so appealing when you have $300,000 worth of debt. But also the the paperwork burden of the electronic medical record is is really unappealing and people don't want to do that. So I I think it's really a a concern that we need to think uh, pretty clearly about. Yeah. Well,
2: but you would think, though, that if there was a shortage, that those who did go into it would make more money because supply and demand.
1: Well, we wish, but it's really about who sets the reimbursement uh, for right. insurance companies. Right. So if I talk to my patient about diabetes and how to take their medications, maybe you know Medicare will reimburse my hospital $48. But if while well, I talk to them about how to make brown rice instead of white rice, which is really important for diabetes, and I simultaneously thread a catheter into one of their orifices, and you can pick any orifice you want, that payment goes up like tenfold. So anytime there's a procedure involved, the payments are higher. When it's talking to your patient about how to take your medications, how to work on the lifestyle to affect the, you know, your illness, that's not reimbursed. So there's no supply and demand. It's simply who was at the table when the uh, rates were set, and you can bet that the primary care doctors were not at the table.
2: Well, what what about the idea of a primary care doctor? Because it seems like now, and I, I've had this experience because I moved from an HMO to to. Blue Cross or whatever, that I don't even have a primary care doctor because it's hard to get in to see one when you're sick. Oh, they can see you in three months. Well, I probably won't be sick in three months. And so I just go to the urgent care, and if I need a specialist, I call a specialist. I don't even really have a primary care doctor.
1: Yeah, that pains me to hear that. And and certainly for someone young and healthy, that, that may work for the occasional thing that comes up. But as patients get older and have many chronic diseases, having a primary care doctor is essential. And, and I'm, it, uh, it's been proved to me more and more during COVID as patients you know, were often cut off from their doctors, how much people's care suffered from having the doctor who's known you for five years and knows the complex interplay of your different illnesses And also knows you well enough to know when something's wrong when they come in and say, hi, something's off with this patient just by the way they're talking, or the way they're walking, or the way they sound. And that's so essential. Uh, Plus, there's more to health than just taking care of your acute illnesses. There's also the idea of being well in between. So a good primary care doctor, even for a healthy person, is helping them, you know, have a healthy diet, exercise to prevent all these chronic illnesses, make sure your vaccinations are up to date, helping you through a pandemic or what have you. So it is really crucial, and you're right, we should be having many more primary care doctors. It's it's kind of a crime that we have more specialists than we have primary care doctors now.
2: Right. Well, if you can't get in, even when you have one, if you can't get in to see them for eight weeks and you're sick today, you wonder what, why why do they take on so many patients that every patient is eight weeks away from an appointment.
1: Well, if, if the insurance company reimburses $30 for a visit in order for the you know company, the hospital, the practice to keep the lights on, they have to take a lot of patients on uh, for very short visits. So it, that's the business model, which as you can see is crazy. We, we sort of have this supply and demand model for a field that really doesn't, you know, it's not toasters or microwaves or jeans. It doesn't quite work that way. And so we're trying to fit one model into something else that doesn't quite work, and, and that's exactly what the problem is now.
2: Well, we started this conversation by talking about that statistic that medical errors are the third leading cause of death, and I, I think you've done a pretty good job of explaining that, That A, that's pretty hard to determine, and B, there's a lot more to the story than just that statistic. Dr. Danielle O'Frey has been my guest. She's a clinical professor of medicine at the New York University School of Medicine, and she has cared for patients at New York's Bellevue Hospital for more than two decades. She has a book out called When We Do Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error, and you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Danielle.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
2: How did we get here? And by that, I mean... How did creatures change and evolve over time to get us humans to where we are today? Did we really start out as fish and at some point fish came out of the water and stood up and started walking? And if so, how does that happen? How did they get lungs and start breathing air? How does this whole process of evolution work? Well, it turns out there is some new research that sheds some light on all of this. And Neil Shubin is right on top of it. Neil is a paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and professor at the University of Chicago. And he's author of several books, including Some Assembly Required Decoding 4 Billion Years of Life from Ancient Fossils to DNA. Hey, Neil. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So when I think of evolution, I don't think of, you know, cutting edge new science, that that's a story that's been told and we kind of know how it all happened. So, so what's new? well we've lived in a scientific revolution for the last two
0: decades and that's the revolution of dna science of genomics and what that new science does when you know when merged with classical approaches from paleontology we see evolution in a whole new light we can now understand the great transitions in the history of life you know life has been on this planet for you know over 4 billion years and we can now see in great detail how some of these huge events that made our world what it is today how they happened you know how did fish evolve to walk on land how did birds evolve to fly how did these great leaps happen well we can now take them apart in fossils and dna
2: and so when we take it apart and look at evolution through this whole new lens is it a whole new story is it contradicting things we had come to believe
0: Yeah. So, you know, one of my favorite quotes, which I was actually pulled out when I was writing the book, was by Lillian Hellman. I was reading her autobiography, and she said, you know, about her own life. She said, you know, nothing, of course, begins when you think it does. And in a nutshell, that is exactly what we're finding Lungs did not come about when creatures evolved to walk on land. Feathers did not come about as creatures began to fly. Many of the features we associate with the great changes in the history of life came about well before. And we can see that written in the, the actual structures we see in the fossil record, but we also see that uh, in when we look at the DNA of, of, of living creatures. So it really changes the time scale in many ways. And, and in fact, when you look at the world that way, it um, it makes some of these huge transitions in evolution much more likely, much more easy to happen. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable.
2: And so, give me some examples of of maybe things that we thought we knew and now w- what the what the reality is. If if lungs didn't show up when when we think they did, well, wh- how do you know? And when did they? And why did they?
0: Yeah. So let's take that as an example, right? So we know that about three hundred and eighty. To 375 million years ago that's a long time uh, fish took their first steps on land before that most life was in water in the oceans on seas um and after that life was on land and you know you think about like walking on land involves a whole lot of structures you need limbs that can move about you need a body that can support the cre- creature you need lungs that could breathe there well as we look at this we find that first Lungs were primitive. Lungs came about in the fossil record, in the evolutionary record, eons before creatures took their first steps on land. The fish living in these ancient streams already had lungs. Indeed, when we look at the fossil record, we find that those fish already had fins with arm bones inside, with shoulders, elbows, even wrists inside their fin bones. And you can ask the question, as you did, you know, well, what's this doing in fish? It turns out that the fish are originally evolved lungs to live in water that had variable oxygen content. And in fact, we see that in fish alive today. That is, they have both lungs and gills. They use the gills when the water has enough oxygen to support them. But then when the oxygen level falls low, which happens during the course of the year, it can be highly variable, they rely on their lungs. So fish evolved lungs as an accessory sort of breathing organ in addition to gills well before animals took their first steps on land. Same thing true with appendages, same things true with arms and legs. We find fish with arms and legs in the fossil record before creatures took their first steps on land. What are they doing? They're living in the water, they're walking on the water bottom likely, they're living in weed choked streams and man- using their little appendages to maneuver through it. So what we're seeing is the course of evolution doesn't necessarily always involve the origin of new structures or new genes. What you're doing is you're repurposing, reusing, modifying what exists in new ways. And that's the big step. And we see this at the level of DNA as much as we see at the level, you know, when we look at fossils and, and anatomical structures and so forth.
2: So the lungs in fish adapted to the oxygen in water, which helped them walk on land. But why, why did they get out of the water? What, what made them get up on the land in the first place?
0: Yeah. So that's a question my colleagues and I have been working on for the last few decades. And we, you know, I lead expeditions to the polar regions where there are rocks of the right age to answer these questions. It turns out when you look at the, what the world looked like 375 million years ago, in the water, you had all kinds of fish, big fish, little fish, but every single one of them was a carnivore. They were fish-eating fish. If you look at land at that time, there weren't any, you know, any creatures with backbones, any of our relatives living on land. There were invertebrates, like spider-like things and invertebrate-like things, and there were all kinds of plants. So compare water to land at this time period. Water is loaded with other fish that will eat you and compete with you. Land has food sources, but no predators or competitors. So we think that there was sort of a push-pull, that any feature that would allow creatures to get away from the water would get them into a much more hospitable hospitable environment where they uh, don't have competitors and predators. And so, lungs already existed, appendages already existed, so one group of of fish took
2: those first steps. So does any of this explain or change the reason why we see evolutionary changes in people and creatures and things? Or is all of this consistent with what we've known before?
0: It's quite consistent with sort of Darwinian natural selection uh, and common descent that is that there is a shared history of life on Earth. What it does is it changes how we you know how it's deployed over time. you know so um, so when you when you look at this, what you see is evolution takes much more um, unexpected twists and turns than we had ever expected. One thing we see is, that similar biological inventions appear independently in many different species often at the same time you know we see this by the way in human technologies as well that's why patent lawyers can be you know well well paid um but in evolution we find it as well that similar designs come about independently um we see that genes can be shared among creatures let me give you one stunning uh, fact you know, now that we know our genome, we've, we've, the human genome we've, was published over 20 years ago. and We've had since then many other genome projects of thousands of species. When we look at our own genome, it turns out our genes, that part of the genome that encodes proteins that our cells make, that's only 2% of our genome. The other 98% is not that. It's something else. And when we look at that, we find all kinds of surprises. In fact, 8% of our genome are ancient viruses, that attacked our genome and were later knocked out, and they sit as like sort of dead corpses of viruses, of infections passed inside of our genome. It means we have about four times more viral genetic material inside our own genome than our own genes. Okay, and you can ask the question how does that affect evolution? Um, scientists at the University of Utah were working on, they weren't studying viruses, they were studying memory in, in mice, and they found a gene that's active in making memories. And it turns out when they looked at this gene, its structure and the proteins that it makes, what did they find? They found that this gene is actually a modified virus. And when they traced its evolutionary history using the DNA record, they found that what happened sometime in the distant past, way in the distant past, like millions, hundreds of millions of years ago, is there was a virus that infected the genome of our ancient ancestors. And that virus was repurposed. Uh, to, to function as a gene involved in memories. So we find these incredible twists and turns to, to how evolution happens, to the fuel of evolution, in ways we could never have predicted. Nobody would have predicted that, you know, decades ago.
2: Fundamentally, though, does evolution happen because, let's use the fish example, did they need to develop these arms and, and things to get out of the water, or it's just that the fish that already had them are the ones that survived and the others didn't?
0: There you go. It's the second one. They already had them. So the ones that already had that stuff were, were poised for success, if you will. That is when the environment, so they already had those structures. They evolved them for one purpose, living in water. But then when the environment changed or when the time was right, all of a sudden those features became incredibly useful to you know, get out of the water when they needed to get away from predators or away from competitors and so forth. So it's very much using what exists, not waiting for new stuff to appear.
2: So this whole idea that we evolve, because I think people have this perception that we develop things to meet our needs, and that's not the way it works.
0: No, nah, it's not the way it happens. I mean, and the needs
2: change too.
0: So you know, the needs at one time, you know, uh, you know, might favor certain features, um, but those features are really you know, for that particular time useful. It's only when they, when the environment changes then those features can find a new utility, some, oftentimes,
2: and that's what we're seeing. And so in that fish example, the the fish that didn't have those developed arms and things that looked like they would be helpful, they just die off.
0: No, they don't die off. They just, you know, they just evolve in different ways. Well, some of them became bigger fish and better predators. Others of them developed armor. You know, so there, there, there are different ways, different strategies. Think of this as... In, this, in these streams 380 or so million years ago, 375, think of it as, you know, it's a fish eat fish world. Well, if you have that sort of environment, there are different ways you could be successful. You can get big, you know, cause big fish eat little fish. You can get armor because that's obviously protection from being eaten, or you can get out of the way. You know, and so what we find are fish following these different strategies, our distant ancestors, you know, those fish that took the first steps to walk on land, they're the ones who got away. Know, but other fish took different strategies to deal with that environment
2: so i understand how the evolution helps species survive but what i don't really get is how do they turn into other species how does a fish eventually become a human and not just a bigger fish
0: Yeah. So basically what we have is when you follow the course of of change, what you'll see is we're talking over, you know, hundreds of millions of years. What we can do is I can trace. So let me give you an example. I, my colleagues and I working in the Canadian Arctic designed expeditions to find a early, you know, early limbed animal. We turned, ended up finding a fish that was transitional. It was one of the first fish to uh, have arm bones and so forth. But it was a fish with a humerus, an upper arm, a forearm, even parts of a wrist, inside of a fin. Likewise, this fish had a neck. This fish, as I mentioned before, had lungs and gills, things like that. So we can trace the upper arm bone, the humerus, um, from fish to amphibians, to reptiles, to birds, to mammals. We can trace the ulna and radius, the, the forearm bones, from this fish all the way up to people through different species. We can trace the the neck, we can trace the wrist. So we can deploy the fossil record to really see these connections and to see how similar features evolve to be used in different purposes from fish to amphibians to reptiles to mammals to birds. Even more, we can look at this at the genetic level. That is, we can ask the question, what are the genes that build our, in our development, build our hands and feet? Okay, fish don't have hands and feet. They have fins, right? And so what are the genes that build our hands and feet? So we can look at those and we can, there have been a bunch of experiments over the last, you know, 15, 20 years that show this, show a a set of genes that are involved. Well, we can trace those genes all the way to fish. It turns out fish have those hand and wrist building genes too. And guess what they're doing? They're building the terminal end of their fin. So what we're seeing here is that what you have are similar genetic tools that build you know, one end of a fin are also building a, a, a limb. So that genetic continuity exists as well. So what we see is incredible continuity, you know, among, you know, all, all life, honestly, but we can trace that all the way from fish to people. Um, and we can do that at the level of, um, of fossils and arm bones and, you know, head bones and so forth. We can do it at the level of anatomy and we can do it at the level of DNA. And it's really all three of those records which point to the same thing.
2: So in school, remember that chart where the, that showed the, the the ape, and then you know the next guy was a little more human, and then the next guy, and the next guy, and then pretty much this up standing up straight human guy.
0: Yeah, I remember that. I don't like that one. (laughs) It's kind of like doesn't really depict evolution as we think about it now. You know, it shows a much more linear path for evolution. And honestly, what we're seeing now is a a a path of evolution that has twists and turns, and mergers, and acquisitions, and reversals, and you know, independent origins of different things. It's it's much more chaotic than that similar that simple you know continual ladder of change.
2: But there is a progression of change. It's because we're told uh, anyway that we we are descendant. our apes are our descendants, that we evolved we're from the that. descendants of apes., yeah. We, yeah we're, we're descended at, from apes, yeah, right. Um, so uh, on that chart, there's these various uh, uh, depictions of, of man developing along the way. But in terms of fossil records, it doesn't seem there, like there's a lot of those middle guys anywhere. That, um, there are
0: a ton of middle guys. There are a ton of middle guys. I mean, the the argument goes, every time you find a middle guy, you create two gaps in the fossil record. We have early hominids that have, you know, small brains and are bipedal. Then we can trace the origin of larger brains. You know, we, it's a, given the fact that the fossil record is notoriously uh, incomplete, uh, we have amazing connections among species. You know, my colleagues and I designed an expedition to find you know, a creature transitional between fish and and limbed animals and land living animals. And we did it using the tools of evolution and stratigraphy and so forth. It took us six years, but we found just that animal, you know, and people are doing that over and over again with feathered dinosaurs that look a lot like they're bordering on bird anatomy, Uh, with whales with hind legs that show how they arose from other mammals when creatures returned to the seas. We have you know, hominids, which can, which show, you know, the acquisition of many of our traits. But even more than that, we have the DNA. We can compare our DNA now to the DNA, our entire genome. We can compare from uh, a human of different kinds uh, to chimpanzees. And we can ask the question at the level of DNA, what are the genes that make us different uh, from chimpanzees what are the genes that make chimpanzees different from other mammals and on and on and on and people are doing that We now can list out what those genes are and ask the question. What are they doing? How are they involved in brain development and things like that?
2: And so you found this transitional creature that's somewhere in between fish and human That's correct. And what did it look like? it's pretty wild it's a i think it's one of the most beautiful fish around
0: (laughs) it's a creature that's about four to eight feet long so with the smallest one's about four feet the biggest one's about eight if i was to hold it in front of you you know what you'd see was a fish with with you'd say initially you'd say probably looks like a fish right because it has scales you know on its back and its belly it has fins and you can see the fin webbing the fin rays in the fossil Um, it has fish-like texture in the bones of its skull the shoulder looks in part fair part of fishy but when you look again what you'll find is this thing has a flat head like a like a early uh, uh, land living animal like almost like a crocodile has paired nostrils Uh, it has a neck no fish has a neck when you look in the fin it has an upper arm a humerus forearm a radius and ulna even parts of a wrist inside the fin some of the bones in its shoulder look uh, like limbed animals like the there's a scapula which is similar to um, our distant relatives. It really is a mix. I remember when we found it, we found it in 2004 and published the paper in 2006 and uh, my son was in uh a nursery school close to here and the teacher asked me to bring a cast of the fossil in after you know after the paper appeared. So I brought the cast of the fossil in uh, to the, my son's class, and I asked the kids. I said, "Hey, hey, guys, what do you think it is?" And one kid raised his hand and said, "Oh, I think that's a fish because he has scales and there's a fin there, so fish have that." And another kid corrected him and said, "No, no, no, it's like a crocodile. <laughs> it's like I'm like you're both right. You know, it's like you know. So you sort of see both features in this thing,
2: land living and fish. And so it is it a it's a transitional creature between fish and human, but. But it isn't like fish became human. It's like, didn't then the fish become something else, and then it became apes, and then it became human?
0: I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, so basically, over time, that's what happens. It's not the fish did it. It's descendants did. Look, uh, you know, we are modified descendants of our parents. Our parents are modified descendants of their parents, and on and on and on and on. And I can trace that genealogy with our DNA, right? If I had your DNA and the DNA of other people, I can actually trace your genealogy from the genomic signature that it leaves, right? Well, I can use those same techniques to, to take our, our relationships even deeper. I could show how we're related to chimpanzees using those techniques, gorillas deeper in the tree and so forth. So think about it as, as a giant family tree, right, um, of descendants, of each descendant is modified from its parental um, Uh, You know, it's it's either as parents or parental species. So think about it as descent with modification I'm a modified descendant of my parents My parents are a modified descendant of their parents and just continue that on and on and on to millennia And you can see how you know, how evolutionary history works
2: and those modifications From my parents to me are modifications just because of the blend of the parents
0: Yeah, and also you have uh, unique mutations you acquired and I acquired mutations. My DNA is not identical you know to them, there are certain parts of it that when it gets copies it makes mistakes and those mistakes are mutations and so uh yes it's blended from both both parents male and female uh, but also we acquire mutations because every time dna is is duplicated there's some mistakes made and some of those mistakes are good some of those mistakes are not so good most are kind of neutral um but that's the case right there so um but, you know, then when we pass our genes on to our kids, the same thing happens, right? So, you know, they are modified descendants of us. And their children will be modified descendants on and on and on and on and on. And that's that's kind of how the tree of life works.
2: And so what does all this mean? What, what, what's the big so what here?
0: The big so what to me is kind of profound, actually. That is, in every tissue, uh, in every gene, in every organ of our bodies. We contain artifacts of billions of years of the history of life. And you can ask the question, like, who really cares? Well, who really cares are, you know, if you look at the Nobel Prizes in medicine uh, and physiology awarded over the last decades, who have they gone to? They go, they've gone to people working on corn. They've gone to people working on mice, on flies. In fact, two Nobel Prizes awarded to five people in the last, say, 12 years have gone to folks working on a tiny little worm A comma on the size of a comma on a piece of paper. Yet that little worm shares our genetic structure, and it tells us how our genes are turned on and off in health and disease, and how our cells are programmed to die, and what goes wrong in diseases like our own cancers. You know, so I like to think that as we discover you know, cures, to everything that ails us, you know, their connection to the rest of life on our planet is something that has profound uh, importance. And the more we understand about our relationship to other species, and the more we understand about the, you know, the workings of the genetics of evolution, the more we can, you know, sort of leverage that and put it to use for human health and also understanding our place in nature.
2: Well, you know, uh, that chart that was always on the wall in the science classroom of those... <laughs> Those guys that were standing up not so straight and then six guys later it's standing up pretty straight. I always suspected that it wasn't that neat and organized and it turns out, as you've been explaining, it's it's really chaotic it's interesting to hear. Neil Shubin has been my guest. He is a paleontologist, an evolutionary biologist, and professor at the University of Chicago. The name of his book is Some Assembly Required, Decoding 4 Billion Years of Life, From Ancient Fossils to DNA. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for being here.
0: Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure.
2: If you drive much, I'm sure you've wondered about the science of traffic flow. It's really fascinating. It turns out that if we all work together better, we'd all get where we're going a lot faster. Phantom traffic jams, for example, they're a real thing that traffic will just slow down for no apparent reason. Why? Well, it turns out that when a car in dense traffic slows down even slightly, that causes the car behind that car to slow down even more. And then the car behind him slows down more and that action spreads throughout the entire lane of traffic and it gets worse and worse the farther back it goes. And pretty soon... Cars have to stop. According to a study by physicist Craig Davis, selfish driving costs us about $100 billion a year in wasted time and fuel. Here's what would improve traffic flow dramatically and reduce traffic jams. Look past the car in front of you to anticipate what's coming up ahead. Excessive braking is a big cause of traffic jams. Act altruistically. When people are trying to merge from the on-ramp, Slow down and let them in. Don't procrastinate. If highway construction is shut down in lanes up ahead, merge early before the lane closes. All those things will help traffic flow a little better and get you going to where you're going a little faster. And that is something you should know. I know you know people who would like this podcast and they would appreciate it if you would share it with them. I just know that to be true. So share it.